Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fire and Forte, and welcome to Natasha Ginevan. How are you doing today? I'm doing really well, Hannah. Thanks for having me. It's a delight to have you, especially as this topic is thankfully very much high profile at the moment. And we're going to be talking about aging and perceptions of aging internally and externally in society today. So for our audience, Natasha is a research fellow with the University of New South Wales in Sydney, Australia. She's also an associate investigator with the Aging Futures Institute, whose focus is on investigating implicit and cultural attitudes to aging, which includes age stereotypes, self-perceptions of aging, and various other things, aging in terms of those with dementia, prisoners, so on and so forth. A very incredible, interesting topic. So Natasha, you must be a really busy lady because aging seems to be very prevalent at the moment. Luckily, it's being talked about a lot. So can you talk to me about what you're doing in this space and also how you got into it? What I'm currently looking at are ways that we can be more age diverse and age inclusive, but I'm also looking at the way that our own self-perceptions of aging can affect our own psychology of aging. And I think one of the things that we, not just me, but many other researchers have realized is that a culture that sort of continuously elevates youth over the other stages of our life and, and therefore sort of also diminishes aging isn't really aiding us in our, you know, aging journey as we transition from midlife into older ages. Very interesting topic and how did you get into this space and then I'll come back to asking you how you're going about doing that interestingly I my first career after I left school was studying fashion and I worked in fashion for almost a decade predominantly in volume and product development and then in my sort of 30s I wanted to sort of explore more psychology because I was always interested and went back and studied that and my very first assignment was on implicit attitudes, implicit bias and attitudes to aging. And it just sparked my interest and, and it's just kept going. And so my research just kept going and I was fortunate to, you know, be able to sort of study that and then go on to do postgraduate studies and research the topic in much more depth, looking at self-perceptions of aging. Very, very different, it seems, to not just go from fashion to psychology, you could argue, but also from going into such a level of detail studying again. <laughs> a lot of the time you think I've got my first degree or qualification, I'm not going to go back to that, but maybe that's just me. I mean, I think that when you sort of get to sort of, you know, older stages of life that you, you go inwards more and there's a bit more introspection, at least there was for me. So, you know, I think I was interested initially in, in fashion, which is all about like appearance and how we can enhance our appearance and so on. And then as I got older, I just sort of went a little bit more inward and wanted to self-reflect. And then I think as I transitioned into my my 40s, I was really, it was really about, you know, pushing up against societal expectations, particularly when there's an intersection, right, between gender and aging, we really start to question and push and push those assumptions. I mean, that's very much on topic of fire and forte, which is challenging that. And also the assumption that at 40, things do get 
that get worse. So in your view, is it is it an internal pressure around aging or an external one or maybe a bit of both? That's a really good question. I think it's both in the sense that, you know, we're social creatures, right? So we will try to meet expectations, you know, whether even if they're negative or, you know, like the aging messages or the archetypes around gender and age are very clear for women, right? And and then at the same time, there is an internal process going on where around subjective age, and there was a really great article in The Atlantic about um, how many of us don't relate to the age that we are, as particularly as we get older. And so there's this whole kind of like, I feel younger than I actually am. Because I think that societal age stereotypes say that as you get older, you are all these negative things in a, in a blanket sort of way, that, you, that you're immediately declining, that you're immediately less mobile, that you're immediately all these things that, that just aren't true. Because actually as we age, we've become much more diverse in our abilities, our interests, we be actually become more creative. And all of these things that actually are counter to the societal narratives around age. So that's why that feeling and that disconnect happens where we think, oh, I don't feel all of those things. I still feel young, but really what you just feel is alive, right? How fascinating that actually the reason why we say I feel younger than what I am is because we are comparing ourselves to an idea of what we would feel like, which we've been taught through the ages. Particularly women, I'm not saying that men don't experience this because they do, but but I think particularly women as they transition into their sort of 40s and 50s, because they're not meeting that cultural archetype of what is desirable, supposedly, right, from a, from a, at least Western cultural perspective. I mean, there's many other cultures that have the same beauty ideals, right? But I think as women transition, there is this sort of inner turmoil about, you know, recognising and embracing the wisdom that's arising, right, from your capacity to not be as, self-conscious and all these other great things that arise in your sort of mid mid to older years. But then at the same time, you've got this sort of culture that's telling you that you're that none of those are valued because of the appearance side of things. So there is a little bit of like inner turmoil where we have to wrestle this sort of like my appearance isn't the same as what it used to be and maybe that's less valued supposedly by culture. But at the same time, there's this like this disconnect because we feel more empowered, we feel more confident, and we can recognize now what these cultural narratives are, which is not helpful. Basically, they undermine our abilities and our capacity, and not just from an inner um, confidence perspective, but in real world situations as well. You know, women in the workplace, you know, there's research showing that women in the workplace a disadvantage because at, at, at a certain stage of their, you know, in their midlife, they're perceived to be like less warm or something, you know. So so they get sort of passed over, which is like completely unfair, unjust and ridiculous, really, because you're just sort of hitting your stride, right, in terms of your capacities. Absolutely. And I can't think of anybody that has become a cold 
person at all. I didn't even know that that was potentially a perception. I'm interested in several things that you said within that answer. And one of those would be the evidence that you've seen about women feeling empowered, confident, actually happy as they get older, because that's an experience that many people talk about. But you have you actually seen data that backs it up? I mean... There are there are different studies that show you know that women probably overall cope better with aging in terms of like the life sort of journey, right? I think that might be because of social networks cumulatively across the life course are fostered much more, and females are usually socialized to be more socially networked, you know, and so I think that assists with longevity and I think there's data that supports you know that males well for example I think there's this there's data that shows that males who are sort of happily partnered or happily married live longer than males who who aren't right and I think you know a lot of the sort of you know of course there's a gender sort of stereotypes as well but I think that overall you know women tend to cope I suppose better with with the aging process there is that tricky, you know, middle period where I don't think that women are really supported, like the example I gave sort of in the workplace. But also, like, I was just listening to a podcast, Breaking the Bias, and it was they were interviewing Stacey London. I don't know if you've heard of Stacey London. She's got, she's the CEO of the Menopause Gap, I think it is. I, I'm not entirely sure, but it's about menopause. and And she really struggled with, you know, the transition out of out of work, which I think was in sort of like very fashion-based as well. It was around sort of like what not to wear and things like that. And I think she was a journalist. And then she, you know, she became kind of a caregiver in this podcast anyway. She says she became a caregiver for a while to her dad. And then she had that intersected with like, you know, a period of like health issues for her where she ended up having back surgery. But there was a bunch of stuff going on with her health that was around menopause and that just wasn't known. Like we don't talk enough about that transition for women and how we can better, you know, support women. But she, you know, she's obviously taken her difficulty and completely transformed that into this new venture that's sort of like an education tool, an awareness tool, you know, helping helping people. Like that's one person sort of that came came to mind in terms of transforming you know, out of the sort of difficulty of of aging and transitions for women and turning it into something, you know, empowering. And you can almost see lots of evidence in the media at the moment as well, that many women are stepping forward and talking about their menopause. I think Naomi Watts, the actress, has actually started a company around, around it, hasn't she, with some medicines, I think, or treatments. And that almost aligns to the fact that, A, you're talking about something that impacts women as they get into that period of their life. But B, you've been bold enough and courageous enough to do it if society gave you this impression that you should actually disappear off into the background. That in itself is evidence that no, 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 no. Maybe maybe we all had to adhere to those social norms before, but we don't need to now, perhaps. I mean, Stacey London that you talk about, she's got a platform, she's been on a podcast, so that's extremely visible. Mm. Yeah, I, I was looking into sort of Naomi's, you know, she's she's obviously become quite 
passionate about this and she's founded, I think it's a wellness, but I think there's also sort of products, you know, for skin and things like that called Stripe. So I, I saw that and I've seen some, some posts. And then of course there's Polina Parishkova, the sort of former supermodel who has written a book called Unfiltered. And, you know, she's sort of pushing back on this, this idea that just because we're aging doesn't mean like, as you say, we have to, you know, fade, fade into the background. It's actually quite the opposite. As we get older, both women and men, actually our focus becomes very honed on purpose and meaning and the, the capacity to support others. And it's very difficult if, if it, you know, in society you're told like, well, your input or contribution is not wanted <laughs> because, you know, you as you get older, you that's the very thing you really want to do. You know, we have this like, future time perspective of acutely knowing at a certain stage how much time is precious and that we hone our purpose and we want to know that we can use that purpose to support other people you know and so much more meaning associated to that than potentially chasing a look or just before we started recording, we briefly talked about going shopping and, you know, love of shopping and clothes. You could argue that in your 20s, especially, so much focus on looks and latest trends. And I'm sure there's much more fashionable people that are just as focused on it now. But actually, as you get older, that's really interesting. And I think I can see that broadly applying to people that actually becomes more about making a difference than looking in the mirror or trying to fit in is it is fitting in part of it as well that you don't have to you you don't have to as much yeah I think you know as humans and social creatures we always want to belong no matter our no matter our age you know because connection is so important and I think you know a lot about our youth is quite sort of looks oriented and you know I mean there's obviously biological pressures for attracting mates and all this kind of stuff that you know, feeds into our own psychology and, uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with that part of our, our our lives. But that's that's not the whole answer. I mean, we are living longer and we're having this much longer midlife and I think that we squander that if we are only seeing it through the lens of what's, you know, possible through a youth-oriented lens. You know, you, youth is worth celebrating but so is our mid and older parts of our lives as well. And from your background in fashion and where you sit now, has it changed the way in which, so if we talk about society, we talk about maybe media, fashion, beauty and business showing us how we might have to look, representing only a certain group of people. Have you seen any change from maybe when you were in fashion and the models that might be used or the people that are featured in magazines, again, models, et cetera, to to those that are featured now in advertising and fashion brands? Yeah, I definitely have. You know, I think that we've come a long way in celebrating diversity, diversity of, you know, looks and gender and race and things like that. I think that we are still, you know, trying to really include be age inclusive in that whole scene but I think that you know people like the, that model Paulina Parishkova and you know other people who who are sort of pro-aging I love Jamie Lee Curtis for example who who's very pro-aging and inclusive I think that you know we're, we're still making inroads with the age inclusivity in fashion and beauty 
And I think there's an, perhaps an added layer of complexity there because of the things we talked about before, where we sort of stumble on our own self-perceptions of aging and insecurities about aging and, you know, overcoming, getting through that heavy cultural veil of youth obsession, you know? And I think that's the, the, the heavy layer that sort of holds us back from embracing age diversity and age inclusivity because we also have this sort of like these very different and diverse ideas of what what it is to age well in the beauty side of things, right? I mean, it's it's very much to do with, you know, the way that we perceive how we age well. So actually magazines, fashion brands, beauty brands are part of the problem, but you reference there that a lot of it is the self-perceptions and where have we got those from? Where do we inherit those from and how do we change them? Yes. Well, I think that we've discussed or we've exchanged, I know, some messages around the theory of stereotype embodiment. And that's actually from the work of Professor Becca Levy at Yale. And she's written a theory of stereotype embodiment, which really is backed with evidence that, you know, shows that across the life course, we tend to take in from the surrounding culture the views of aging. So then that informs our own self-perceptions of aging. And we just take it in and, you know, automatically, unquestioned. And, you know, sometimes when we reach a certain age, when those age stereotypes become self-relevant, that's when we sort of realise that, hmm, I'm not sure, I don't really connect with some of these age stereotypes. And we tend to embody these and limit ourselves by embodying these stereotypes, these age stereotypes, and that can impact us well into our later years. And her research has shown longitudinally, actually, that people who have more negative self-perceptions of aging don't live as long as those who are more sort of positive about their aging. And actually those who have more positive attitudes live longer but also have better functional health. So the answer is, I don't think that we are born with these really negative views of aging. Of course, you know, aging and then decline and dying and not sort of like, you know, they're not super positive things that we all want to, you know, face, but we ultimately, it's part of the natural life course that we live, we grow older and then, and then we die. But we, we don't just have this like sharp decline where we hit middle age and then it's just all downhill it just doesn't work that way we're living longer and there's a lot a lot of positive things about you know growing older I completely agree so far the self-relevant part so let me just check my understanding of that so if we embody a stereotype that might be that we think that oh we're looking for gray hairs and we're going to point out our wrinkles and all of these things that we might see as being the most important things and very negative things about getting older and it's all quite funny when you're maybe 20 but then when you get older does it become relevant that jokes that you used to make about gray hair and wrinkles and feel quite depressed about it because you knew how you used to feel about those things when you were 20. Is that what self-relevant means? Yeah, somewhat. And, you know, that's right. I think we're fed these sort of predominantly negative stereotypes, age stereotypes. I mean, there are positive age stereotypes, sort of like that as we grow older, we grow wiser, which is mostly the case. It's not always the case, but we are fed predominantly negative stereotypes about it aging and you know even as young as four children 
sort of a fed, like, you know, a huge portion of older characters are usually, you know, wicked, like the wicked witch or, you know, much sort of older and senile and decrepit and all this sort of stuff, if they appear at all, right, in media. So it's no wonder, you know, as we, you know, we start from an early age where we're already forming stereotypes by the age of four and going into school and then as we get older, and also, you know, female older characters are pretty much absent. And I've sort of researched and written a little bit about this in a piece I, I wrote called The Media Portrayal of Older People, The Good, The Bad and The Absent. And a lot of women over the age of 40 are just not present in, in media, in sort of mass media. And so what that does, not just in media, but in real life, gives the impression of insignificance that older women don't hold the same significance as, as, you know, supposedly older males because they're just not given, you know, the same airtime, the same relevance, the same platforms. Yeah. Do you think there's a bit of a gap there between the portrayal in media? I mean, it's a great title as well. Can I say the good, the bad and the absent? Excellent. There seems to be a disconnect to me because I could, I might not see those people in the press but when I see my family or go into work, I personally always think there's been a lot of good role models or people that are extremely capable. But what does that mean? Does that mean that it's harder for those people to feel confident being so visible if they're not seeing themselves in the broader landscape of representation? Yeah, I mean, that's the shame of it is because in real life, we all know examples of older people, you know, I mean, I've got sort of, you know, aunties and, you know, some of my aunties is sort of like in their 70s and 80s and still working in, you know, impressive roles. But I've also got sort of aunties who who aren't working, who are equally impressive. But it's just that, you know, that that does give mirror back to them that their roles and their hard work and their achievements perhaps aren't as celebrated. But it also gives, you know, younger people as they grow up the impression because they're not seeing it on a regular basis, you know, that sort of perhaps that female leaders aren't as capable, you know. But, you know, that's just not true. We know in our real life that older females are completely competent and achieving. So you could actually embody a vision of your future in your career, which is I don't see women over the age of 50 on TV in interviews, for example, or at the board or, you know, in in the business section of a newspaper and without even realising, just assume that you'll probably retire earlier than a guy. Yeah. I mean, look, there's some, you know, there's some, I think, changes and some women that are really sort of you know, pushing the envelope and making noise about it. But I, I think as a whole, we haven't really progressed that that much in that way. What a shame. Let's be part of the answer to that. I mean, I really do feel very strongly about it because you referenced earlier well-being and the well-being of those that feel more age positive. But overwhelmingly, in what you've said, we're still fighting it. So therefore, that's going to have a detrimental effect on a lot of people's well-being if they are 
dealing with that and and especially as it becomes and especially as an aging population I suppose that actually you're more likely to be older and growing older does that give you a longer amount of time to not feel too great not feel too significant or are there any answers to that what about community and you referenced earlier the importance of social networks do those help in that kind of mindset yeah, no, I think that's that's right. Community is really important. And there are there are lots of communities, you know, popping up around this topic now. You know, not just for sort of like, you know, females growing older, just in general, all of us growing older, males, females, and so on. But I think some of the movements around this, for example, there's, you know, the Modern Elder Academy, who is a midlife wisdom school established and founded by Chip Connolly, an author of a book called Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder. There's also an Australian version of that now called MEAX that's run by Gabriella Domicel, who's got a little group of people, you know, getting that going now in the Blue Mountains, actually. There is like lots of sort of intergenerational initiatives. Just this morning before I started work, there there was a, uh, it's called Co-Generate group that sort of have like lots of different people who are interested in age diversity and, you know, artists and things like that, bringing together their initiatives around this. There is also like great sort of books and things like that that you could read about this, like Ashton Applewhite's book, This Chair Rocks. Becca Levy's book, Breaking the Age Code, which is a really great one. And yeah, so there's, there's communities and and I think that we actually do need more community around this because we are living longer. And so age diversity is important, not just for like the older stages of our life. There's a lot for younger people to really get out of intergenerational connection as well. I think the way that we, our society is kind of set up in our institutions, a little bit age segregated. And I think that the more we can sort of find connection and healing through intergenerationally, I think that that will bring us a long way to disrupting the sort of age stereotypes that we've all internalized. And at the same time, expand the benefit, because I really like the idea of intergenerational groups Surely if you're a school child or a teenager, and if you do know people that are of many different ages, that's quite a broad support network, isn't it? Especially if they're outside of just your parents, which you might not feel as comfortable talking about. But there's something, in my mind, much more caring and nurturing if you've got some people around you who are different ages, which might in turn make you feel safe. No, no, I agree with that. I mean, my my research that I was fortunate to you know be funded to do for my postgraduate work was looking at cross-cultural perceptions of aging and my research did find that those who are sort of part of the more sort of collectivist culture tended to have on the whole more positive attitudes about aging in terms of their psychological growth their physical change and even in in the idea of psychological loss as we age as well on the whole they were more positive if you had that more collectivist orientation, which usually means that you have more extended network of different age groups around you. And if someone was watching this keen to kick off a community group, like one of the ones you've referenced, are there any examples that you've seen that are easy to replicate or that you might suggest someone to research and look into? 
Yeah, I mean, specifically, I, I really liked the the communities that were coming together in the Co-Generate Network. It's a US-based organization, but I think they've got other people from different countries tapping into that. And, you know, there's also different activists as well, like activist groups like Art Against Ageism, which I really loved. And one of the ones that I really loved was Age-Friendly Vibes, which I'll come back to because that's about greeting cards. But in terms of community, I was really impressed with some of the people presenting at, in this co-generate webinar this morning. One of the things was a as was around dance, using dance and movement and nonverbal connection. You know, it's it was called a circle of chairs. And I think there's actually a toolkit that you can go on to the website and find so that you could just do it in your local community. And a circle of chairs is like where they come together. And there's literally a circle of chairs of different generations. And then they have these little like movement things that they can do. And that brings you beyond the sort of thinking mind. And one of this, the people who participated in this, who was 94, he said that when you're doing this little exercise, you almost feel like for a moment, you don't even know what your age is and you don't even think about the age of other participants. All you think about is sort of the the group and the connection. And I and, and that resonated for me because when I finished my my thesis, which actually took me quite a long time because I was trying to do it when I had kids, kids. So it took me six and a half years. But after I completed that, I went and took Taekwondo classes at the local school community. And I was in a group of students ranging from the age of like seven all the way up to like in their 50s, right? And I remember just feeling like a student, like this young, you know, this seven-year-old next to me, we were sort of lining up to do these practices, these different Taekwondo moves. And I remember turning around to the seven-year-old and saying like, oh, I really hate this one. And he goes, yeah, I hate this one too. And like, we were just relating to each other like students, you know? So I, I would really recommend joining community groups or intergenerational groups. And I think there's a lot that you can get out of it. And that just removes this barrier, this invisible barrier, which is, I don't talk to that older lady. I don't have anything yeah. to say to her. You're just laughing about something in common yeah. at that moment. Because yeah, that, a common experience. Yeah, that's a great example. Because I was actually thinking community networks would be so important for you at your age, because I always imagine retiring and thinking, make sure that you're still social. And whenever I see a group, and there's quite a few near where I live, actually, I can see a group of older men walking together. I absolutely, I love that. There's a big swimming community, big group of women, 50s, 60s, 70s that go swimming together. But actually, that's one thing, I suppose, to make sure that you're still social to your point earlier around well-being. But another thing is, are you mixing with other generations? Because it sounds as though everybody benefits. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that that is the case, that it's not just beneficial for the older people, it is beneficial for younger people as well. Because not not only is it in that moment that it's beneficial and for that period of that younger person's life, but it's something, it's sort of like social and psychological capital that the young person has now because it's a scaffolding for how they see older people and ageing as they age being involved with different age groups, you know? A incredibly interesting conversation. You referenced doing your thesis and PhD when you were had children. And I suppose I can't help but ask you what your perception of aging was. So as you reached, let's say, 40, 
Were you feeling good? Were you Had you embodied the stereotype? And was it that that led you to do this studying? Or were you actually one of those that felt quite bold and positive about it? That's a really great question. I mean, when I went back to study psychology, I was in my 30s, my early 30s, and I encountered that first research topic on implicit bias around age in my early 30s. And I was quite fascinated by that. I was interested in the age part of it, but what interested me the most was humans like capacity for denial, especially around age. And that's what sparked my interest, right? So then I kept studying that well into my 40s. I'm now in my 50s, right? I suppose around my late 30s, early 40s, I did sort of wrestle with some of those inner demons about like, oh, I'm losing kind of my my youth and my, you know, like many people do, females or males, but, but you know, all that kind of stuff. But I think what was really great was I was had the capacity to sort of frame it with research, you know, with the research around it, which probably buoyed me a little bit through that that transition, you know. But I mean, I mean, I'm like every other person, I internalize the surrounding culture and wrestle with it a little bit. But I think that I've been able to, with the psychology research, but also sort of my own inner work and journey, you know, to to be able to hopefully overcome a lot of that negative inner talk and, you know, be able to embrace more of the positive side than the negative side. It's good. I mean, we do need you to be a positive spokesperson thinking about <laughs> it for aging if you consider it, if you're if you're researching it. So it's important, but I, I and I'm all for sort of embracing positive attitudes to aging. But I am also I also caution against sort of faux positivity. Uh, I think we all, in a way, become our own little existentialists, you know, around this sort of aging journey. But I think awareness certainly takes us a long way to overcoming those external negative you know, narratives. Sorry, can you expand on the point or elaborate about we all become our own existentialists? I just think that aging is really living, right? So it's incredibly powerful biological process, but it's also a social and a psychological one, right? And I think that we tend to, because of sort of like the age denialism that we are sort of quite, that is quite dominating our view of aging culturally and socially, then a lot of us might sort of go into denial or we have these like little mental gymnastics about avoiding the conversation about age or we spout things like 60 is the new 50 and 50 is the new 40 and 40 is the new 30, all that kind of stuff, right? And I think having an awareness gives us an opportunity to stop and really embrace and reflect on our aging journey instead of avoiding it. And then that does, in a way, really mean that you sort of are becoming a little bit of an extension, you know, subjective sort of thinker, which is a little bit like an existentialist, you know, a little bit like Jean-Paul Sartre or Simone de Beauvoir or, you know, Simone de Beauvoir actually has written extensively about our ageing and our subjective ageing experience. We're going to have to add lots of links to the reading <laughs> and the many books and articles and projects that you've referenced. I really like the term embrace and reflect. It's not that you're going to go from one state of mind, which is, oh God, I'm aging. I'm not ready for this, into this positive high five. It's all rubbish. And I can see <laughs> that I've been fed this myth. It's just not going to happen, is it? Whereas what you're talking about is more of a slow realization 
see what it means to you personally, get used to your aging journey, embrace and reflect on maybe what you've believed before and then how you can behave and manage it moving forward, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would agree. Something like that. So, you know, because that way it's like you're digesting it, you're processing it. Now you mentioned earlier about the difference in genders that I am curious about because obviously you and I, both women, we probably are quite well versed on what it's meant to us. But in your research and your knowledge, what's it like for a guy aging? How different is the experience? Yeah, look, I mean, I can only obviously speak from, you know, what I've learned from research and perhaps interviewing people, males. And from from what I've learned, some of the focus groups I've done, some older people older males talk about, you know, work and their identity being quite wrapped up in their careers and their work. And often when they sort of transition into retirement, there can be like a little bit of a feeling of sort of like free fall. You've sort of stepped off this cliff of your self-identity into what you don't know what you are because you're not the same. You're not the role that you were when you're doing your career. And, you know, from a sort of, that's not like, you know, judgmental way at all this is sort of like the reports I've heard from 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 males but I think it's also because we socialize or in the past we have socialized males to put most of their life's focus into their job and their career and you know equally females have been socialized to be you know work but nurturers as well and take care of the other sort of home and family and other domains like that so I think it can be at times even bigger struggle for males as they transition out of, you know, that that working age into retirement because, you know, like anybody else, like we discussed from a subjective age perspective, they don't always feel ready. They don't always feel like they're in their, their retirement age, you know. And so I think there's not enough perhaps done in terms of succession planning that's, you know, that's like more of a ramp than a pushing off a cliff type thing, you know. To, to sort of, you know, so that so that people can reestablish what their identity might be. It might still have something to do with their life's work, but it might just change shape into some other forms of activity. And I think that would be would be helpful. So in some ways, aging for males is equally challenging, but just different to the transitions that females experience. I think this is a really important thing to reflect on, actually, that as women, we might feel woe is us because we feel this focus to keep a certain look about us. It's all about looks and, you know, maybe we feel more pressured to spend money on improving that and all of those things. But actually, men's might, men might not be looks, but it's another form of identity change or pressure. So it's just different. It's quite an interesting point, isn't it? And to your point around being pushed off the cliff to retirement. That I think a slow transition into retirement, I've heard more and more is happening. It seems, it, what a shock to the system to finish work on a Friday, wake up on the Monday, and then that's it for the next 30 years. Yeah, look, I think there's even research done, and I know there's a TED talk that I could probably share a link to. I can't remember exactly the name of the researcher, but he he talked about essentially moving from work into it doesn't necessarily have to be delaying your retirement. It's just that if you do decide to retire, then move to something equally engaging in terms of level of activity and interest. Because his study showed that people that like 
moved out of work into retirement that sort of was into nothing, their memory wasn't so great compared to those who sort of stayed working or engaged in something else. So, so you know, work and retirement are two really interesting, important areas that need some, some I think, some, some development, especially if we're going to move in a ramped way instead of like, like we set off a cliff or something. And I mean, it's not only bad for, it's not only an issue for someone's well-being, also for a company or for the world in which it needs different sorts of workers. You might yeah. have that person. I remember reading a while ago that one of the banks in the UK were hiring some retirees that decided to go back to work and saying they're so much warmer with as at the front of the bank welcoming people because they are not doing it out of pressure. They're not as stressed and they just mm-hmm. have this nice manner about them, which again, massive generalization, but there's so many different roles that someone could maybe go into and benefit society or a business or a company or an organization. I, I guess volunteering is a good example as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, we need we do need to move towards age diversity much more so in, in the workplace. And also, you know, I think that there's, there's research in Europe, in particular in, in Germany, where they really tried to quantify sort of productivity of different intergenerational groups and versus sort of same generation groups. And they have shown in the right sort of management and conditions that the intergenerational groups can be more productive than the same generation groups. But I think, you know, there's a lot of like stereotypes and generational barriers in terms of generational stereotypes that we need to get past to even sort of trial these sorts of these ways of working. I'm thinking, okay, how can I be a part of an intergenerational project (laughs) in the work that I'm doing at the moment? But you did reference, I think, before, there's a lot of projects that it sounds like you've read up on or have seen that you think are are really great. Could you maybe touch on a few of those and any that maybe we could support as consumers or people to read about? I mean, I think my research locally has been predominantly, you know, looking at ways that we can improve age diversity in the workplace recently. I haven't been involved in in much research around intergenerational work, but I do I do know colleagues who who are doing that. I am familiar, I think, with what most other people locally would know of the ABC program about the older older people's home with the younger kids. I don't know if you've seen that. I've um, seen a similar program. So yeah, where four-year-olds went into a nursing home. Is that right? Yeah. Yes. That was done quite recently here. I know that that's been established for some time in Japan and in, in the US, actually, in some of the sort of aged care facilities and so on. And I think that, you know, there there are sort of like growing movements about sort of the, the benefits of intergenerational kind of communities that I'm sort of looking out for locally. I've become more familiar with the ones that are established overseas, but I haven't really researched or done much research because my focus has been mostly on age diversity in the workplace at the moment. But I can send you some resources for sure to to share with, with your viewers. That would be brilliant. And I was... Pretty sure that you mentioned something about age-friendly vibes. What was that? Oh, yeah. That project. So age-friendly vibes is an artist in the US, Jane Golden. She's got a a sort of a greeting card business called Age-Friendly Vibes. And it's just these like really simple and beautiful designs 
that are positive and pro-aging rather than these sort of like diminishing you as you as you age. And so it just it's not it's so welcoming and nice to to open a birthday card that celebrates your age rather than diminishing it. So any advice for people that maybe they have internalized this ageism and maybe they're getting to 40, 50 beyond, what kind of, maybe, is there any advice, maybe three things that you could suggest from your research that that people could do, whether linked to their mindset or their workplace or overall well-being? Yeah, look, I think the main thing is becoming just becoming a little bit conscious about it in your own thoughts and your own language I often just refer to like your own conscious awareness is your best tool for it actually some of the answers might be on the doorstep that you just assume that that person might be I don't know what there might be some kind of presumption there that you can start addressing your thoughts towards that person or those people as well I've got some homework for you. We definitely need lots of links to what you've talked about. So let's catch up with this on that afterwards. But Natasha, your work is brilliant. I'm really looking forward to sharing this with our audience because it's actually very empowering and it's lifting a lid on something that is not as often discussed. It's just assumed. And I do think it will lead to a lot of much better well-being, just even realizing this topic is being looked at. So Thank you for spending this time talking through your research. Oh, thank you, Hannah. It's been great to speak to you. Take care. Thank you very much. Thank you.